Acts chapter 4, this morning, verses 32 to 37. Acts 4, verses 32 to 37. We're continuing, this is actually the last one of this morning in this viral series. Um, and it's, it's really been a joy to be able to preach it and to hear what God has been doing in some of your hearts as you've shared with that, that with me through the week, um, either in emails or messages on Facebook, phone calls, and face-to-face. Many of you have shared with me what God has been doing in your life, and, and some of it is a result of, of uh, you, you were saying about what we've been studying and focusing on, about God wants us to live outwardly and share and, and be vessels of communication um, from his son to, to a lost and dying world. And we've been looking at many things in regards to the early church, um, how they were viral, how they literally spread, um, spread the gospel so effectively, so efficiently um, to so many people. And we realize that we also are called to do the same thing, to be viral spreaders of the gospel. And this is the second time I want to look at the church. In the book of Acts, there are really two uh, main commentaries that deal with what the church looked like. There are two main descriptions. One is found last week that we looked at in Acts chapter 2. And then this other one here is in Acts chapter 4. They're very similar in their, in their, in their uh, treatment of what the early church looked like, what the early church did. So last week we looked in chapter 2. This week I want to look in chapter 4 about what this church had, what this church was about, what did their DNA look like. And remember we said last week that it's not about a checklist of things that we do. I said that we're not to go through this and jot down in our notes, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this. I told you that it all revolves around that relationship with Christ individually. And when we get that enriched and deepened and strengthened and it grows through knowledge and experience, then those things are going to be the outworking of that dynamic relationship. So rather than focusing on the product, we need, to, we need to focus on the source and trust that the product is going to take care of itself. Same thing is true this morning. We, it gives us an opportunity to look at a church and say, do we possess these things? But if we do not possess these things as a church or as individuals, it's not for us to say, well, I need to start doing that. We need to go back to the source, deepen and enrich our relationship with Christ. Look with me if you would. I know I said verse 32 Uh, But I want to jump back up to verse 29, actually. It says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as any had need. And Joseph, who was surnamed Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite from the country of Cyprus, 
having land sold it and brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let me stop there. What a remarkable scene that was in the early church. There are four things this morning I want us to be able to look at that this viral church possessed. And the first thing is this. There was unity. Unity among the believers. These people were all in the, of the same mind. They were going the same direction. They were all living life from the same playbook. They had the Holy Spirit living inside of them, the Word of God filling their mouth. They had the passion of Christ literally emanating out of their life. These folks were all on the same page. Let me say something in regards to unity. And why I want to take a moment and spend an ample amount of these four, these four parts on unity. Because nothing kills a viral church more than discord among believers. Let me say it again. Nothing kills a viral church's influence more than discord, disunity among the believers. You see, many of you probably that are here this morning have been in church before. This may not be your first experience. Many of you may have had a rich history in church life. You may have come from a previous church or even in this very church. And you may know horror stories about church business meetings. No, this was just this was a freak of nature how this happened that I'm teaching on unity and we're having a business meeting tonight. It just happened. It just fell like that. One, pastors will tell you that one of the great things is when we get to preach on unity because we get to, not because we have to. This is one of those moments. We get to, I get to, I don't have to. This, you, you probably bear on your back or your shoulder scars from church discord or fights or bickering. And think for just a moment of how, how that affected you. And maybe you even left the church. Maybe you lost some friends over the deal. Maybe you were ostracized or maybe you ostracized someone else. The, the fracture that that brings to a family. You know, a lost world doesn't know much theology. But the one thing a lost world knows is that those who claim to be followers of Jesus should look and act and speak like the one that they follow. They know that. They know that if we're called Christians, if we are followers of Christ, then our lives ought to look like His. And in a church where we come together for the purpose of advancing the gospel, worshiping Jesus Christ as a family, and they don't see that, do you know what it does to an unbelieving world? Do you know what message we send to an unbelieving world when those who follow the Prince of Peace can't live peace out in a church? When we all of one family under one Father, God can't get along? Do you know what that does to that unbelieving world? It, it makes their unbelief more rigid. It, it, it actually supports their reason for unbelief. They can look it over at that church or look over at that church or, or that church and say, see, those who claim to love Jesus, those who claim to follow Jesus, they can't even get along. Now, does that mean? Does unity mean that we all see things the same way? Does that mean that we in the spirit of unity all have same preferences, same ideas, same hopes? No, it doesn't mean that. There is a huge, a church cannot maybe see all things the same way. We may not all agree on the manner in which we communicate the gospel. We may not all agree on certain issues regarding the function of a church. 
we may not all agree on the color of carpet in a Sunday school classroom. Okay? But there is a tremendous difference between not all seeing things the same way and things that really don't matter and discord. You see, just because you may not see things like everybody else does not give us the right to run them down. It doesn't give us the right to respond in hateful words. It does not give us the the right to act or react better in a way that does not glorify and honor Jesus Christ. We can disagree politely. We we can continue to, to, to value the things that do matter and not allow the things that don't matter as much to, to spread discord and, and, and bickering and fighting and backbiting. You see, not only, not only does nothing tear down the viral aspect of a church greater than a church fight, but you know what Jesus said in John 17? Jesus tied two things together that are amazing. I mean, truly amazing. Two things that I would not have ever thought would have been tied together. Jesus says in His final prayer to His disciples in John chapter 17, He prayed not just for those disciples of His, but those who would believe on Him through their word. So really, in, in essence, Jesus in 17, chapter 17 of John prayed for us. And He prayed that we might be one. One with one another, that we might be one in Jesus as Jesus is one in God. And I want you to, in fact, let me just read it to you so we can all grab a hold of the word, the wording that Jesus said. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, okay? Listen carefully. That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me. And I in you, why? That the world, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Why be in unity? Why be one? Why be in Jesus like Jesus is in God? Why would we worry so much about unity? Jesus said, so that the world may know that you, Father, sent me to the earth. What that means, if we flip it over and look at it from the other side, what Jesus is saying is when we as a church practice unity, when you and I dwell together in this community of faith with abounding love for God and for one another, we are literally giving evidence to the world that God sent His Son, you and I preach not just the gospel by the words we say. We don't just preach the gospel during a sermon. We preach the gospel according to this by getting along that the world may know that you sent me. People ought to be able to know and encounter you. Ought to encounter this church. According to that, they ought to believe. It ought to add to Their faith. You know what, God? Only you, only the presence of your son could make all those people be able to move in the same direction. I believe that God exists if for no other reason than the unity of that mixed bag of nuts at First Baptist Church. That the Holy Spirit himself, you would think that the Holy Spirit would be exhausted trying to hold us all together, right? 
that they could look. Yeah, I believe. If that's true, then it verifies what I said earlier. That a lack of unity and a, and a growing discord among believers causes unbelievers to further disbelieve. It leaves believers oftentimes confused, disillusioned, and concerned. No good thing comes from discord. The early church had it. They had unity. They followed, they walked, they loved. But the world may believe that you are, you sent me. Notice the second thing. Unity is something to definitely be protected. It wasn't just unity, but number two, there was power. It says in verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. What happened, if, you, if you're not familiar with this early part of the book of Acts, what happened was when Peter and John were going to the temple, they saw a man who was lame from his mother's womb. And he would be carried out to the gate called Beautiful outside of the temple. And he was begging. And and the Bible tells us that when Peter and John came up to him, he was asking for money. And they said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you. They said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this man, who had never walked before, rose up and walked. His his tendons were strengthened. His muscles were strong. His bones were, were now no longer bent and able to straighten up and stand up and walk. And this man praised God. And John and Peter began to praise God along with him, and there began to be a crowd drawing around Jerusalem. And and Peter used that as an opportunity to share the gospel, to remind them that it wasn't Peter that healed this man, it was Jesus. And he shared the gospel with them, and thousands of people came to faith in Christ through that one incident. And the religious leaders that wanted to shut them down, the religious leaders that wanted to stamp out this new sect they believe called Christianity sought to, to bring Peter and John in for the purpose of, of, of reprimanding them. And they did. Peter and John left, walked out, and encouraged those believers, telling them that we have to continue this mission. We have to continue to speak. So then when the believers all get together, what do they do? They're not patting themselves on the chest. They're not boasting in what God had done. They're rather saying, let's pray. There was power, guys. Notice in verse 32, it says something. (coughs) Excuse me, verse 31. That when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Guys, that building shook. Can you imagine that for just a moment? I've been a part of some pretty powerful prayer meetings. My own life, I've had some very intimate prayer times with God. But I've never had a prayer time where my room shook. Never been to a church. I don't know how much shaking this church could handle. I've never been to a prayer meeting where it shook. You know what God was doing? This real evidence of the power. We know that they had power. We read the Bible. Can you imagine what that did for those believers? As they're praying together, united, all for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, for God to just reach down there and shake that house a little bit. Do you know what that would have done for those believers? 
to realize that God in a very tangible way has acknowledged, has unleashed, had infused those believers with power. Let me remind you, the reason they were infused with this power was because of their posture and position with God. They humbled themselves before God. They sought God. They made their petitions known to God. And in a very real, tangible way, God let them know that their prayers were answered. They prayed. The place shook. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak the word of God boldly. Do not lose that last one. Prayer is what started it. What ended it was a power that translated into them speaking the word of God boldly. In the face of threats, in the face of enemies, they still were able to rise up with a holy boldness and communicate the good news of Jesus Christ. Despite all the threats, despite all the opposition, these people set themselves to praying, beseeching God. He answered. He shook the place. They were filled with the Spirit for the purpose of going out and preaching and teaching and communicating the love of Jesus Christ boldly do you want boldness in your life i believe exactly what spurgeon said the person who kneels before god can stand before anybody that's what happened they fall down before god they're praying god hears their prayer answers their prayer infuses their life with the filling of the holy spirit for the purpose of speaking boldness came as a result of their prayer life came as a result of God filling their lives with the very personality of God in, in the Holy Spirit, filling their life with that power. Yes, there was physical evidence of power. The place was shaken. There was spiritual evidence of power. They got up off their knees, emboldened to do what they knew Jesus Christ was wanting them to do. The Holy Spirit always provides for us and equips us to do what God wants us to do in the beginning. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. He guides, He instructs, He empowers us to do the mission of Jesus Christ. It's evidenced right there. They prayed, it was shaken, they were filled, and they spoke. Notice this third thing. Please, verse 32, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. This family was so close-knit, was so tight. This again goes back and gives further evidence of the unity of these believers, that they considered everyone in that family of faith to be a family member. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon all of them. And great grace was upon all of them. Grace is an interesting word in the New Testament. It's used in a lot of different ways. It's not just used to refer the gifts of God. It's not just used to refer His attitude towards us. It's not just refer, used to uh, refer to the fact that we get something that we don't deserve 
or not get something that we do deserve. In this sense, that grace is a word that is often used in coordination with the word favor. And if you go back to chapter 2 in that description of the early church, it said that they had favor with all men. If you look at this and what is, found, what is read in chapter 4 and what is read in chapter 2, you get the idea that number 3, these believers were walking in the favor of God. They were walking literally in God's richest blessing. You know, it shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, really, let's, let's form a little mental infographic if we can. We have God who has at the top all power and resources. We have out to the end of this timeline a lost world that God wants to reach. And in the middle, what God has is the church. So the church literally is the hands and feet the visible hands, feet, and mouth of Jesus to reach the lost world. So God, the church, and the lost. Why would it surprise us that the church that saw and understood the mission of Christ to make disciples of all nations, why would it surprise us then that that church that has grabbed a hold of that mission and sought and made it their aim to live it out. Why would it surprise any of us that they would lack the favor and grace and tremendous blessing of God? You see, I, I want you to know, this is not a prosperity gospel. It's not what I'm communicating at all. I don't believe that God necessarily wants you to be rich. What I believe is God will enrich that which glorifies Him. And in, re in regards to a church, if we're not focused on the one thing Jesus told us to do, if we're not living for that great and glorious purpose of the great commission of Jesus Christ, then I don't think we should expect anything in regards to the great favor and the extra grace that we get in order to do it. If you think, and God is here, and the church is here, and the lost are down here, the church that gets it, the church that's doing it, God has found now an institution in which He can funnel His resources through for the purpose that He called them to do in the first place. Now let me remind you, for those of you that think that I may be trying to share some type of a sideways prosperity gospel, let me remind you, a majority of those people died a martyr's death. Okay? These people, by and large, gave away everything they had. That's not something you hear from a prosperity gospel. What I'm sharing with you is that these people were definitely in unity. There was evidence of God's power on their life. And there was some tremendous favor. There was an awesome hand of God working in ways that could only be described as God extra. God doing something a little extra in their life. God doing something a little extra in that church. Can I tell you this? That grace that you receive as a believer, that favor, may come in ways that you had never imagined or dreamed possible. Something that you thought was going to be very difficult turned out to be quite easy. Something you weren't looking forward to actually turned out to be not so bad. Or maybe in a moment when you needed it most, God just provided someone right there in order to, to help you and to, and to be a comfort and encouragement to you. 
But it's not just about the good things. It's not just about this favor showing up and providing good things. It's about the grace and the favor that shows up in our life when times are tough. You see, sometimes we hurt. Sometimes we get hurt. Sometimes some awful things happen to us as a result of living in this fallen world. But the believer that is headstrong, that God is still in control and has a purpose for us and seeks to magnify him in that situation, I tell you, that person is also able to live in the favor of God. Do you remember what the apostle said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? He was talking about the struggles and trials that he was going through as an apostle. Do you remember what he said? He was crying out to God. In the midst of those trials, do you remember what God said to him? My grace is sufficient. What God was telling the apostle is, I know you're hurting. I know there's trials and and difficulties going on in your life. But God communicated to him, "You, you still have my favor. I'm still providing for you what you need in order to get through this. The church was in unity. The church was demonstrating God's power. The church was walking in the favor of God. And lastly... Four, there was tremendous reverence for God. Tremendous reverence from God. Acts chapter 2, verse 43, fear came upon every soul. Fear came upon every soul. That's the description in chapter 2 of Acts. This story, this church, understood the severity of God. They didn't just understand the severity of God. They taught the severity of God. They communicated that God is to be taken very, very seriously. There came a time in the church where people were selling things, lands and possessions, and they were coming at this time in the church and bringing it to the apostles' feet so that they could distribute it out to those who had need. As we read in our text, there was a man named Barnabas who came, sold a possession, and brought the land and the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was used uh, for the ministry. There was another couple named Ananias and Sapphira, who just after Barnabas, Barnabas did what he did, they sold a piece of land. That's what chapter 5 starts out with, but. All of this good news, the first word in chapter 5 is but. And they sell this piece of land. And they hold back some of the proceeds of the sell. And they keep it for themselves. And then they go to the apostles with the money that they left over that they took off the top and they give it to the apostles and they are leading the apostles to believe that they are giving all of the money that they made off of the sell of the land, even though they kept some back for themselves. The problem was not that they kept back some for themselves. The apostle Peter goes on to say, when it was your land, you could do with it whatever you wanted. The problem was they sold the land, kept some for themselves, and then went and told the apostles that they sold the land for this much, and here it is. Do you know what God did to the man of the house? Struck him dead. Right there in the middle of the service, he came up and Peter has a conversation with him and says, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Boom! Falls down dead. His wife comes in a few hours later. They have a conversation with her. She supports the same story. Boom! She is struck dead. 
What do you think that did to the church? You ever wonder why in those old country churches, the cemeteries right across from the church? Yeah, friend, you've you got to walk through headstones to get into worship. You're going to be a little more sober when you stand in the pew, right? Guys, twice, two times in Acts chapter 5, great fear came upon all. You know what God was saying to them? In the beginning of the church age, God was saying, you guys take me seriously. And guys, if God would say that to the church and show that early church, just because you're new believers doesn't mean you can lie to me. Just because there's a good thing going here, I'm not going to overlook all the good that's going on when you, when you blatantly lie to me is what God is demonstrating. Let me ask you this. If God took their sin so seriously in the beginning of the church age, how much more seriously will he take it at the end of the church age? If that was just the start, and the end of the church age is when we're starting to see the gospel go into every tribe, nation, and tongue to hasten the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If he took it that seriously in the beginning, I have to believe He'll take it a whole lot more seriously at the end of the church age. Friends, we must remember, God still takes sin very seriously. He always has and He always will. The fact that you are saved does not mean God has a restraining order on discipline in your life. It doesn't mean now that I'm saved, God can't deal with me. That is false. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us a totally different story. We think sometimes because I'm a child of God, God won't do anything to me. Wrong. Spoiler alert, it will happen. You know why? Because you are a child of God. Because you are His child. Let me read to you out of Hebrews chapter 12. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens, if you endure chastening. Don't you love that? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, if you are without God's discipline in your life, you are illegitimate, Hebrews says. If there's no chastening in your life, it is because you are not a child of God. So if we are a child, we must realize God is working on us. He's disciplining us. He's correcting us. Why? Because He loves us. Friends, God is not going to gloss over your backbiting. He's not going to gloss over your murmuring. He's not going to gloss over the seeds of discord that you try to sow among other people. He is not going to gloss over your hatred or your bitterness or your envy or your spite. He's not going to gloss over it, I assure you. Vengeance is mine, Hebrews says, and I will repay. That's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 said it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. There's a word in there that keeps me up. Fall. You know, whenever that word fall is used, it's used to describe a moment when you are not suspecting. It's used to describe a moment where you slip. Something that you were not planning for. It's a fearful thing to slip, to tumble into the hands of the living God. There are a lot of believers that are living as though God is not going to chasten them. They conduct themselves privately or maybe even publicly in a way that does not glorify, honor, or reflect the personality of Jesus Christ. Don't think for a moment because God hasn't disciplined you in a very clear way that he is part of what you're doing, that he is okay with it because he's not. He never has been and he never will be. Judgment must first begin at the house of God, the scripture reminds us. Today, I want you to look at these. There was unity. There was power. These were people who believed that God was severe, took him seriously. They also believed They also were demonstrating God's favor. That's the viral church. Taking God and his mission seriously. Let me ask you, individually, right where you are, we're individuals that make up this awesome body. Where you are, are you taking God seriously? Christian, let me ask you, have you just kind of given God a wink and a nod and not really thought too much about righteousness or integrity? Not Not thought too much about personal holiness and the desire to be like Christ. You're not just you're not just every now and then participating in sin. You're living in sin. You're shackled by it. You know, God loves you too much to leave you in that state. God loves you too much to leave you in that way. He has a plan for you that reflects his son, Jesus Christ. He wants you out of there. I've told you before, God will break your arm to get to your heart. And I hope this morning. that if you're sitting right there and you're thinking, God, I'm not really taking your message seriously. I haven't really been taking your word seriously. Whether I'm 16 or 106, I haven't really been taking it seriously. Friend, would you be willing to repent of that right now as your heart says, I want to? Maybe there's that sin in your life and you know exactly what sin or sins I'm talking about and you're saying to God, God, I'm sorry. I haven't seen sin like you do. I haven't been thinking about how how wrong this is. God, help me overcome that. Would you repent of that, turn from that sin, confess that to God? As he, as he gives you the power to be able to overcome that. Child, friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, you don't know Jesus as your Savior, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I'm going to ask you this morning, would you remember that he loves you and he died for you? And today can be the day that you start a brand new life with him, one step at a time. Salvation, church membership, rededication, baptism, Maybe it's just a time of personal, private prayer at the altar. Whatever that is, can we walk out of here, do what God is calling us to do, putting on our heart to do, that we may be able to walk out of here, change people, equipped for his purpose.